What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Israel Johannes. The first thing I want to talk about in this episode is the relationship between talent and the crew. And mainly, when you have that relationship between talent and crew, it starts with the producer. The producer is the one that talks to the talent most often. They're in constant communication with them over the phone, through email, and they can coordinate how a show is going to be broken down, especially because you're going to have either one or two analysts who know the game, who know what's important to talk about and what's just extra fluff. And so they'll help the producer kind of parse through what is important and what is not. But then there's those of us who are on the associate producing side, either on graphics or on tape, and the talent can talk to us about what they see is usable and what they see as extra. So last season when I worked on Mavs Live, I was familiar with Dana Larson, with Brian Damaris, with Devin Harris, and so on and so forth. And so if there were any stat that Brian or Devin may want to look at, or if Dana would suggest, okay, let's look at the rebounding because it's apparent in a specific game, or if Brian would say, you know, their threes are causing a big disparity in the score, or if Devin would say it's the way that they're playing a certain style of offense and how successful are they in that offense, can that be shown in a graphic? Then the producer and I will break down, okay, this is how we can put it on a graphic, and then the producer and the EVS operator will determine this is how we can show it in video. And so there can always be a back and forth when sometimes you can present a stat that showcases what is going on in an analyst's mind. And so sometimes an analyst will see the game through their own lens and they'll say, is there a stat that we can use to portray what's going on? And sometimes I'll find it through either a normal metric or an advanced metric or create some boundaries so that it can show how long this trend has lasted, so on and so forth. But for the most part, there is coordination between the producer and the talent and then the APs as well. And even just last week, I was speaking with Aaron Hardigan, who hosts Pelicans Live for a majority of the NBA season. And I brought up to her what I had found from the truck associate producer at New Orleans where he would tell me about the third quarter the third quarter scoring for the Pelicans and how up and down it can be whether they're at home or on the road and so I put it upon myself to figure out okay how can I pinpoint exactly where the Pelicans were having issues and so last week that brought up in the rundown in the episode I talked about their paint defense and their three-point defense by quarter and how those two points can help shine a light on why the scoring was the way it was and the defense was the way it was for the Pelicans from quarter to quarter. And then when I brought that up to Aaron, she had a, like a light bulb come out and it was, it was just an extra stat to provide context for why the Pelicans were having the struggles that they were. It didn't answer all of the questions, but it did provide a little bit of context. And so having that back and forth helps out 
both sides whenever she's on camera and wants to bring up a stat that is verified by us or by her or um, a stat that may have been said on the game broadcast and then we can showcase it in multiple ways or when the analyst is able to break down tape a certain way and there's a stat to provide a little bit more credence to it. Having, having that relationship be symbiotic, for lack of a better term, is always better than the opposite. So working with great people in front of the camera, working with great people behind the camera, it's very important to have a, have a successful show. And that dynamic within the control room can make or break the success of a show in the short term and the long term. Now, there's stuff to talk about on the court. So let's break down the Mavericks' last four games, starting with November 8th versus the Raptors. It was a 127 to 116 loss. However, Luka dropped 31, but the Mavs missed free throws and gave up 70 plus paint points again for the second time this season. So we'll look into that. The next game, two days later, November 10th versus the LA Clippers. It was a 144 to 126 win, and it was an in season tournament win. So it was a great bounce back win considering. The Mavs were on a roll, and that Toronto game just kind of snapped them out of it. Luka led all scores with 44, another 40-point game against the Clippers, and the Mavs' mistakes seemed to be fixed immediately, so it wasn't a long trend of mistakes. They found a way to get out of it. The next game, November 12th at New Orleans against the Pelicans, was a 136-124 to win. Kyrie and Luka combined for 65 points, Kyrie leading the way with 35. And the Mavs had a season high in fast break points, which I wouldn't have thought this was possible a season ago. And then November 14th at the Pelicans, which was an in-season tournament game, unfortunately, the Mavs lost 131 to 110. And they got waxed on the fast break, complete turnaround. And with turnovers, which is... Very surprising. And we'll also talk about the return of Herb Jones and how that affected the game. So to lay it all out, like I do every week, how would a producer and a graphics AP present these stats? Again, number one, look for trends compared to last season. Number two, the points of contention from the last several weeks Rebounds, three-pointers, free throw percentage, second chance points, paint points, fast break points, and clutch games. It may not be all of those this time, but there are going to be a couple or a few that are an important stat to look at for each game. And then three, establish the new trends and identify new and or recurring problems. Now that we're more than 10 games into the season, there are going to be some stats that demonstrate their current identity and it's going to be a benchmark for where the team needs to go in their next 10 games. So for the first game, uh, Toronto Raptors at the Dallas Mavericks, what stood out? The Mavs were out-rebounded 50-38. to 38. And when it comes to rebounding, again, I only bring up whenever they're out-rebounded 
because last season when they had those struggles of being out-rebounded, they couldn't make up the loss of possessions through miscellaneous scoring, through forcing turnovers, et cetera, et cetera. The main thing that they were able to do well was take care of the ball. However, they didn't create as many opportunities as they needed to considering their pace was very slow last season. I believe it was the third slowest last year. And so not being able to out-rebound your opponents really hurt them in the long run. This time around, being out-rebounded is not as much of a, of a problem for the Mavs in terms of it's not going to kill them, but they still have to make it up somehow. And it's better to out-rebound your opponents than to get out-rebounded. What really killed them is that they were outscored in the paint, 72 to 40. 40 points in the paint is already so low. Giving up 72 is too high. There are multiple reasons as to why you only score 40 in the paint. It could be that the Mavs shot a lot of threes in that game. I will take a look right now as to what the Mavs shot in that game. It was 17 of 41. Not that much more than the 11 for 36 that Toronto had in terms of attempts. The Mavs had five more attempts. It doesn't exactly explain why Toronto had a 32-point advantage in the paint. Nevertheless, it's something that the Mavs can't afford to keep doing. Now they're 1-1 one one this season when allowing 70-plus paint points. Last season, they were 0-3. Again, already a better record. However, it's not sustainable. It's just not something that you should allow as a team when you have paint defense, especially when you have bigger bodies now, when you have stronger bodies. That should be a point of emphasis to not give up so much in the paint. The Mavs also uncharacteristically gave up 16 turnovers. The Mavs are one of the best teams at holding on to the ball, taking care of the ball. They don't give up that many turnovers compared to the rest of the league. So when they give up a number like 16, it kind of makes your eyes look at what went wrong. And you can credit the defense of the Toronto Raptors for that, considering they had 10 steals. But the Mavs just have to be a little more cognizant. Hey, teams are going to try to force turnovers on you. You got to be careful with the ball. You can't play slippery. You have to be more disciplined. And that will help you cut the margin whenever you find yourself in a bit of a pickle. Here's something, though, that kind of reared its ugly head from last year. The Mavs missed 12 free throws and then ended up losing by 11. Now, there, I had kept count. For, for some reason, I can't have an automatic count as to how many games in which the Mavs had more free throw misses than their point differential. I had to count that manually last year. However, I did find a handful or two of games in which the Mavs had lost games because of their free throw shooting. Now... Asking a team to shoot 100% from the free throw line is a tall order, almost impossible. That, that's Humans aren't perfect. But let's say they made eight more of their free throws. The game would have been a little bit closer, and so then the game plan would have changed because the margin wasn't so big. They could utilize crunch time a bit more effectively and then go for the paint, go for the twos a little bit more. And it wouldn't have felt out of reach in terms of the game itself. But that's just something that the Mavs have to clean up. It's not like it's going to happen every time. 
even in the next game, it actually got better, and we'll get to that in a second. The biggest push happened in the third quarter when the Mavs led 66 to 64 after being down at the half, but then Toronto went on a 22 to eight run. And eventually they pulled away, never gave up the lead again. So it's one of those things where you let the team get, you let the opponent get on a run and at some point it's just too much to overcome. And so it has to be the, uh, the Mavs had to, force themselves to really play defense in a way where they don't let the other team just kind of get out in front of them so that they can keep the game close and then take over in clutch time as they have all season. That seems to be where their strength is because their losses have been by, all their losses this season have been by double digits. So if the Mavs can keep knocking on the door or if they can keep the lead, they have a much better shot than if they just let a team go wild at that point, it's already too late. Now, let's go to the Clippers game. It was an in-season tournament game, and it was Luka's 10th 40-point game versus the Clippers in the regular season and the postseason combined. That's the most by an opponent in Clippers franchise history. Nobody has more than seven. I think it's Kevin Durant. Luka having 10. I mean, we've seen all of the commentary about what Luka does to the Clippers. But it's just insane watching it up close. And we've even found stats of the matchups that Luka can expose, especially against Ivica Zubats, who's a great defender in his own right. He's a great big man. He just has trouble guarding Luka. But the Clippers as a whole have trouble guarding Luka. It's almost impossible to hold this man. So... I'm not as surprised that Luka had 40 against the Clippers. It's just more of, if you're thinking from the Clippers perspective, what do we do with this guy? So let's break down what the team did in this game because it wasn't just Luka having 44, although that made up a lot of it. The Mavs had outstanding three-point shooting, shooting 19 of 42, which was 45.2% from three. They also scored 20 points off of 14 Clippers turnovers. And in the second quarter, remember how in the last game, the Raptors pulled out in the third quarter. In the second quarter of this game, the Mavs shot 16 of 25 from the floor. That's 64%. Of that 16 of 25, they shot 10 of 15 from two and six of 10 from three. They also shot nine of 10 from the free throw line. All of that happened in the second quarter. Then they had eight assists to two, ton- two turnovers and then scored nine points off of Clipper turnovers in that quarter. Just in that quarter. They out-rebounded the Clippers 16-8 to eight in the second quarter. And then Luka had 17 of his 44 points in that quarter. And Kyrie followed up with nine. So if the Clippers can look at anything and say, what really killed us? It was that second quarter. And... As a whole, the scoring margin was 47 to 18. You don't win games when you allow your opponent to score 47 and you only score 18. So if anything, it's less about containing Luka and it's more about being better in those quarters because the Clippers had either won or matched every other quarter 
that second quarter, they kind of gave it away. Good for the Mavs to take advantage of that. And once you pull away, it's very hard to come back from. So props to the Mavs for doing that. Now, they kept it rolling in this third game that we're going to talk about. First of two in this home and home in New Orleans. So Mavs at Pelicans game one. What stood out? Kyrie Irving led all scores with 35 points. 22 of them came in the first half. Luka Doncic added 30 points overall, 15 in the first half, and 15 in the third quarter. Offensive explosions, right? He didn't end up playing in the fourth. The Mavs had a season-high 30 fast break points. 30. That. This change of pace that the Mavs have, they're sixth in pace in the NBA now. Being the third slowest pace last season and then jumping to sixth of this year, Jason Kidd has talked about it in his post-game press conferences that it's become a point of emphasis for this team that pace is going to dictate the success of this team. And there have been a lot of people who said, oh, Luca can't play that fast. That's not his game, so on and so forth. It didn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Pace gets you open buckets. It gets you easy buckets. It elevates your scoring and that's why they're currently the second highest scoring team in the NBA behind the Indiana Pacers. When you have easy buckets, it just makes basketball easier to play. And it's showing on the court for the Mavs. When you have 30 fast break points, you're getting, not all of them are super easy, but most of them tend to be easy. And so winning by 12 as they did, that made part of the difference, if not all of the difference in that game. But we can look at something else that also created a big difference. They forced 18 Pelicans turnovers and scored 22 points off of those turnovers compared to six points off of the Mavs' six turnovers. So not only did the Mavs take care of the ball really well by only giving it up six times, they forced 18 of them. That's a 300% markup. They had the Pelicans for give up three times as many turnovers as they did, right? You generally win more games when you have that much of a disparity. When you're plus 12 in the turnover margin and you capitalize on it, plus 16 in the points off turnover battle, it's very important that the Mavs win in that miscellaneous category in order to be successful in these games. And just to put a bigger picture on that. They, the Mavs generated 10 more field goal attempts despite attempting only one fewer free throw. So all of those turnovers that they forced, all of those missed opportunities on the Pels side, when it gives you more field goal attempts, you're going to have a higher success rate in the NBA. You're going to be able to score more points. You're going to be able to at least keep the ball away from the opponent so that they don't have a chance at cutting into your lead or extending their lead. All of these little bits and pieces, all these little categories are very important in terms of making sure that you stay on top of what you want to do in the game. You want to make sure that you stay ahead in the count. You want to make sure that you don't give the other team life. And 
by constantly forcing turnovers, it can demoralize a team. And then when you capitalize on it, it further demoralizes them. So it's very important for the Mavs to do things like that, game to game to game to game to game. That's how they'll keep winning. Another point in this game is that the Mavs had 29 assists to their six turnovers. That's a 4.83 assist to turnover ratio. So I was a little curious as to how successful teams were with that kind of a ratio. Teams are 229 and 62, which is a 78.7% win percentage. When when recording an assist to turnover ratio of 4.83 plus since 1996-1997, basically you win a lot more games when you force a lot more turnovers. Um, Excuse me, when you don't give up so many turnovers, and you have a lot of assists. 29 assists is a lot for this Mavs team, considering they play a little bit more isolation. But to have that ratio 29 to 6, it's it's almost unstoppable. On top of that, this was the third game this season, making 23-pointers. I've said multiple times, if this team can shoot the lights out from three, go ahead. Right now, they're 3-0 in those games. It's also the second most in the NBA behind Indiana with four, who's 3-1 in those games. And then last but not least, they outscored New Orleans in the paint 54-48. Not that big of a margin, but it's another point of contention. They did well in the paint. They limited New Orleans considering the big bodies they have. They had Zion on the floor. They had... Jonas Valanciunas on the floor, Brandon Ingram on the floor. So it was important for the Mavs to have that advantage in the paint. However, this did not hold because in the next game, in the in-season tournament game of all games, the Pels came back, snapped their five-game losing streak. And how did this happen? Brandon Ingram and Jordan Hawkins, the rookie, Hawkeye, led all scores with 25 points each. No Maverick had more than 17 points. The Pelicans outscored the Mavs in the paint, 60-40. to 40. In the fast break, 46-12. to 12. Yes, the Pelicans scored 46 fast break points. It was the second most by a Mavs opponent in franchise history since 96-97. 47 was the most on March 25th, 2016 at Golden State. That, if you're looking at it from the defensive perspective, that's just despicable. 46 points on the fast break. Albeit, a lot of it happened from the turnovers, which I'll get into as well. The Pelicans outscored the Mavs in points off turnovers, 31 to 10. And the Mavs gave up a season-high 20 turnovers, which was the most since November 7th, 2022 versus Brooklyn, where they gave up 22. So again, it's uncharacteristic for the Mavs to give up that many turnovers. And that's what led to those fast break points, those points off turnovers. And it's something that the Mavs have to be very careful about. They have to make sure that they they can't keep giving up turnovers like this Otherwise, their opponents are going to outscore them in easier ways than it would be for the Mavs to try to make up that kind of ground. 
So these are the points of contention that I've been making for the Mavs that seem to be consistent, that sometimes help them win games, that sometimes show why they lose games, and it's going to be something I keep harping on week to week to week. Let's look through the miscellaneous scoring and how the Mavs can, how it's kind of shown in the disparity between winning and losing. Some of them, not so much. Some of them, more than others. In the paint, since November 8th, which was when these four games started, in the Mavs' wins, they score 52 points in the paint, which is tied for 11th in the NBA in that span. But in their losses, they only score 40. Ties 21st in the NBA. 12-point disparity. Kind of see where I'm going. It, lead, you, it leads to losses when you don't have as many points in the paint, when you can't take advantage of specific zones that are easier to score in, so quote-unquote easier to score in. But will grant you more success when you have more scoring in that area. From the second-chance points category... In wins, the Mavs actually only score 14 compared to 16 in their losses. Their 14 second-chance points ties 16th in the NBA, and their 16 second-chance points in losses ties 8th in the NBA. Now, second-chance points is a different kind of miscellaneous category. Generally, to, to have a second-chance point, you would have to gain an offensive rebound, which means that you've missed your shot. If the Mavs are shooting well, they can't miss their shots, and then they can't get their own rebounds. So it's not out of the ordinary for the second chance points to actually be lower in wins. It can be a sign of two things. One, you just can't rebound, or two, you're scoring so well that you have no need to rebound. So that can be something to to at least be aware of whenever you see that disparity between wins and losses. In the fast break, when the Mavs win, they score 22 and a half fast break points, which is second in the NBA behind New Orleans 46 that they scored in this one game. And then in losses, the Mavs only score nine fast break points a game, which is tied 19th in the NBA. So again, more in the miscellaneous category, those are big differences for each of these categories in terms of when the Mavs lose, they have so much less. Minus 12 in the paint, minus 12 and a half in the, excuse me, minus 13 and a half in the fast break, and then minus 10 and a half in points off turnovers. Cleaning up a little bit of each of those is enough to overtake your opponent. I've said this before. I'll continue to say it again. It's important for the Mavs to be better in those categories whenever they find themselves struggling, and it can keep them in games, help them win, win some more. So we'll talk about in the coming weeks how they perform week to week, game to game, how they get better in each of those categories, or worse, we don't know. This is a long season. But this isn't the only team I'm going to talk about because New Orleans, 
and Oklahoma City have some exciting games to go through, or at least some nice stretches that we'll talk about in their week three breakdowns. That's coming up next. Okay, first let's go over the Pelicans five game losing streak from November 4th to November 12th. All the ranks that I'm going to give are across that span. The Pels scored 109.4 points per game, which was tied 25th in the NBA, 46.5% from the floor, which was 17th in the NBA, 22.8 assists per game, which tied 28th in the NBA, 5.8 steals per game, which was 26th in the NBA, and they gave up 15.4 turnovers per game, which was the 11th most in the NBA. And in the miscellaneous categories, they scored 48 paint points per game, which tied 18th in the NBA. They scored only 10.2 fast break points per game, which was 29th in the NBA. And they only scored 9.8 points off turnovers per game, which was also 29th in the NBA. So how did the Pelicans get back on track when they struggled on every single one of these categories? I'll tell you how. November 14th versus the Mavericks in their in-season tournament game, the Pels scored 131, I'll say it again, 131 points on 52.1% field goal percentage. They dished 33 assists, stole the ball 17 times, and only gave up 13 turnovers. So they cleaned up a lot of these areas. And that's just the standard side. Let's look at the the miscellaneous scoring. They scored 60 points in the paint compared to their 48 that they had averaged over that five-game losing streak. They scored 46 fast break points. Unheard of. It's so rare to have more than 40 fast break points. 40 just seems like an insane amount. 46? Man, forget about it. And then they also scored 31 points off turnovers. Now, some of those points counted towards both of those categories at the same time, so it's not like they had 46 fast break points and then a separate 31 points off turnovers. But it was a microcosm, or at least these stats reflect how the Pelicans played against the Mavericks. They stole the ball a lot. They capitalized on those turnovers a lot, and they scored them quickly a lot. So what else could have been the factor? Because there's no way that the Pels can just bounce back like that, right? In a night where they did not have Willie Green, who was their, who was their head coach, they did get back Herbert Jones, who is one of their best, if not their best, defender on the perimeter. And offensively, he contributed 19 points on 6 of 8 shooting, Two for four from three, five of six from the free throw line, had four rebounds, four assists, and a season high five steals. So you can see how the Pels had 17 of them overall. Five of them came from Herb himself. It also ties the second most in game in his career, which he's had multiple times. He's had five steal games plenty of times, but to do it over and over and over again, this guy's in his third year. So he defensively was the anchor that the Pelicans were missing. He was there for the first two of those 
five losses, but not having him on the floor for those last three games, for those previous three games, I should say, was a big factor in the Pels' lack of success. And having him back on the floor only helped them get a lot better. And to go along with all those stats, he also had two blocks, showcases how much of a defensive threat he is. Last week, I had mentioned the paint defense and the three-point defense for the Pels. So let's update those numbers between their wins and their losses, at least in the paint. In the five Pelicans' wins, the Pels allow 47.6 paint points per game. And then in the six Pelicans' losses, the Pels allow 54.7 paint points per game. About a 7.1 margin. But it can be the difference in some of these games that they have lost, such as the game against Houston, which was also an in-season tournament game where they lost by three after blowing the lead in the second half. And then let's look through the quarter breakdown in all 11 of these games. They give up, the Pels give up 11.8 in the first quarter, 12.7 in the second, 14.2 in the third, and 12.7 in the fourth. All of them I'm describing are paint points. So it starts to tick up in the third quarter. Uh, For some reason, the Pels seem to just have issues with defense in the third quarter. This game was not the case. They had, when I pull up this game log here, the Pels scored 44 points in the third and only gave up 31 to the Mavs. 31 was the most that the Mavs had scored in a quarter in that game. But when you score 44, I mean, No one's stopping you, right? Let's also look at the three-point defense. And I'm going to break it down by quarter in all 11 of these games. The opponent three-point field goal percentage on three-point field goal attempts have changed a little bit since last week. In the first quarter, the Pels give up 31.8% on 10 attempts. In the second quarter, it falls, like it did last week, to 27.8% on 12.1 attempts. Again, their opponents are shooting more threes and missing them in the second quarter. Then in the third quarter, a 10% increase, 37.8% on 8.9 attempts. And then in the fourth quarter, it's actually gone down because the Pels defense since that Denver loss from three has actually been pretty good. The Pels give up 33.3% from three on nine attempts. Since that loss to Denver on November 6th, the Pels have only allowed seven for 36 from three in the fourth quarter. They are tightening it up a bit. Now it's just a matter of translating it to the third quarter. So now that the Pels have found their way back on track and have one by they're one by one gaining the pieces that they need. They've got back Najee Marshall. So they're still missing Jose Alvarado. C.J. McCollum, they lost Larry Nance Jr. um, a couple games ago. But with the core, most of the core being there, they can still win games and they can still execute at a high level if they pay attention to these miscellaneous categories, if they pay attention to the details. And this coaching staff has to continue to keep getting this team prepared for all the challenges that they'll face. Dallas is a really good team now. The record shows that they're only they're eight and three. 
But the Pels can be in that upper echelon, as I've said before. They can be within that top four. They can definitely be in the top two. It's a matter of execution. So with a win like this, with their current health situation, they can now use it as a springing board to games in the future where, the, where they'll say, we took down the Mavs like this. We may not be able to take down other teams in this way as consistently, but if we continue to execute in this fashion, games will be a lot easier to win than they have been in the past. Now let's transition to the Oklahoma City Thunder because they are an exciting team to watch. Shea Gilgis-Alexander scores 29.3 points per game this season, which is 7th in the NBA, leads the league with 2.6 steals per game, and has the most drives in the NBA with 22. Chet Holmgren is second among rookies in scoring at 16.4 points per game. He's also 6th in the NBA at 2.2 blocks per game and second among rookies behind Victor Wembanyama. He also has three double-doubles, which is also second among rookies behind Victor Wembanyama. Same as the scoring. I mean, it's, it's Victor, it's Chet. That's kind of how that rookie class is going right now, despite this being Chet's actual second season. He missed all of last season with a broken foot. And then Cason Wallace, first-round pick from this season, from this most recent draft, he's shooting 55% from three, which is actually first in the NBA, regardless of class. And his true shooting percentage is 77.2%, which is fifth in the NBA. So having that pure type of shooter, I mean, last year, the, the Thunder's best three-point shooter was Isaiah Joe. He's still on this team. Then you add Case and Wallace to this. This is a powerful Thunder team that absolutely sliced and diced the, the Spurs in their in-season tournament game on Tuesday night. Now let's go through the Thunder as a team, the stats that they pull up. The Thunder block 6.2 shots per game, which is fifth in the NBA. Now Chet has a lot to do with that. He has about a third of them. And then from the floor, they shoot 49.2%, which is third in the NBA. Crazy high efficiency. And then from three, they shoot 37.6%, which is fifth in the NBA. Again, Shea and Kaysen and Chet, they're all contributing to these, to these great statistics. And then from the free throw line, they shoot 85.3%, which is second in the NBA. Having a great free throw percentage can make or break five to 10 wins. It can be the difference between being 10 to 15 games above 500 and being five games below 500. So for the Thunder, they are doing much better in all these categories. They are excelling in the categories that they need to. They just need to stay consistent with that throughout the entirety of the season. Something that I picked up on last, uh, last year with their shooting in the restricted area, which is that semicircle, that solid semicircle right underneath the basket, inside that area, the Pelicans shot 62.5% in the restricted area last year, which was last in the NBA. This year, they're shooting 65.9%, which is 18th in the NBA. Percentage-wise, that doesn't seem like much of an increase, but if you look at how they jumped in rank, any 
any improvement in that area, that's the closest area to the basket. Any improvement in that area will only help a team in their scoring woes if they have any. They already have many ways that they can score, especially with Shea on your team. But being more efficient inside is better than to be last. And then in the mid-range, this year the the Thunder shoot 43.6%, which is ninth in the NBA. The Thunder also have the fourth best or the, the fourth fastest pace in the NBA at 102.32 possessions per game. And then they're seventh in the NBA in steals at eight and a half. And they score 18.7 points off turnovers, which is eighth in the NBA. A lot of numbers I'm breaking down to showcase the success of, of this team and why they are surprising most audiences, at least the ones who haven't been paying attention to the Thunder as of late. So then how did that all factor into their in-season tournament game? Let's break down their game against the Spurs last night. I'm recording this on Wednesday, the Wednesday after this in-season tournament game. SGA led all scores with 28 points on 10 of 16 field goals and was a perfect 7 of 7 from the free throw line. Added 6 rebounds, 5 assists. He also had a career-high 7 steals. He had never had more than 5 in a game. And then Josh Giddy, a.k.a. the new Pistol Pete, according to Shaq, contributed 18 points on 7 of 11 shooting, 7 rebounds, 7 assists, 2 blocks. Chet, Chet and Victor didn't really have that big of a game. They didn't match up very as often as people expected. But Chet did score 9 points. He had 7 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 steals, and a block. The Thunder as a whole scored a season-high 51 bench points, and they had 60 paint points for the third time this season. So now Oklahoma City is 2-1 in those games. They had 31 fast-break points, which was the second most for them this season, and 23 points off turnovers, which was the third most this season. So the Thunder are a young team. They're an exciting team. They are a developing team, and yet they are finding successes in the trenches And they can find themselves, if they don't find themselves in the top six, they can still be in the play-in conversation because they have built a chemistry over multiple years and they continue to improve with everyone on the floor. The pieces that they add only complement everyone who's already been there and everyone who has been there is developing at a higher, at a much faster rate. So it's a credit to Sam Presti and the Thunder organization and Mark Dagnall, the head coach for how this team has continued to prepare and continue to perform and excel given the expectations that a lot of people seem to have for them. So this team is some team to watch as the season goes along. And the more Thunder games that I work, the more that we'll get more into their stats. So the last but not least piece of it all, this in-season tournament is about halfway over, if not more, for some other teams. So we're going to talk about the standings for the two groups that we've talked about, West Group B and West Group C, and we'll talk about some upcoming topics as well. (music) 
All right, let's look at the in-season tournament West Group B and West Group C standings. When I talk about these standings, I'm going to bring up the point differential because it's the second tiebreaker after head-to-head. -head. And it's going to play a pivotal role in determining the wildcard standings, considering some of these teams will not win the group. So in West Group B, the Denver Nuggets are number one at 2-0, plus 14. Number two, the Houston Rockets at 1-0, plus three. And number three, the New Orleans Pelicans at 1-1, one one, plus 18. And number four, the Dallas Mavericks are 1-2, minus 14. And then number five, the LA Clippers at 0-2, minus 21. And then in West Group C, the Minnesota Timberwolves are at first with a 2-0 record plus 10-point differential. Number two, the Sacramento Kings at 1-0, plus 7. Number three, the Golden State Warriors at 1-1, minus 1. Number four, the Oklahoma City Thunder at 1-2, plus 27. And then in fifth, the San Antonio Spurs at 0-2, minus 43. Now, some of these teams have played one in-season tournament game. Some have played two. Some have played three. So let's look at the Mavs, Pels, and Thunder remaining schedules. The Mavs have one home game left in the in-season tournament. That's Tuesday, November 28th versus the Houston Rockets at 7.30 p.m. Central. The Pels have a home game and a road game left. Their home game is Friday, November 17th versus the Net the Denver Nuggets at 7 p.m. Central, and then on the road Friday, November 24th at the LA Clippers at 9.30 p.m. Central. For the Oklahoma City Thunder, they only have one road game remaining, and that is Tuesday, November 28th at the Minnesota Timberwolves at 7 p.m. Central. So next week, we'll do a, re a week four recap, and then we'll take an updated look at the in-season tournament. The standings won't be finalized by then. The tournament is not going to be over by next week, but a clearer picture will be painted. And so we'll get an updated look as to how that bracket is going to shake out. And we'll, if the East is also showing clear signs of what those standings are going to be, we'll take a look at that as well. But that will definitely, definitely be within the next week or two. And then I would be remiss if I didn't talk about my Dallas Cowboys, giving them a special shout out. They beat down the New York Giants Yes, it's the New York Giants, but I'll take a win over them over a loss any day. Next up is the Carolina Panthers. That game will be Sunday at 12 p.m. Central. So shout out to them. Keep winning. And uh, you know what, what more can I say? Before we go, let's go through the national and local NBA tip-offs. I've got a lot of games on this slate to look through. For Wednesday, November 15th, we have the Celtics and the 76ers at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on ESPN, followed by the Kings versus the Lakers at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. On Friday, with the in-season tournament games going on, there are the Kings versus the Spurs at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 Central on ESPN, followed by the Suns at the Jazz, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. Saturday, November 18th, the Mavs and the Bucks will play on NBA TV at 8, 7 Central, as well as Bally Sports Southwest and Bally Sports Wisconsin, if you are in those markets. And then the local NBA tip-off that we got on Wednesday, November 15th, the Mavs will play the Wizards, second night of a back-to-back, -back, at 7, 6 Central 
on Valley Sports Southwest. And then Friday, November 17th, the in-season tournament game between the Nuggets and the Pelicans will be at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Altitude Sports. And then on Saturday, November 18th, the Timberwolves will play the Pelicans at 7-6 Central on Valley Sports North and Valley Sports New Orleans. And the Thunder will play the Warriors at 8-30-7-30 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and NBC Sports Bay Area. Then on Sunday, November 19th, the end of week four, the Kings will play the Mavs at 7-30-6-30 Central on NBC Sports California and Valley Sports Southwest. And finally, the Thunder will play the Trailblazers at 9-8 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and Root Sports. So that'll do it for me. This has been The Control Room. I'm your host, Estrella Johannes, signing off.